welcome everybody to Point South Live. I'm Sarah A. Lewis. I'm the executive director of the Oxford American and host of the Point South podcast. So this next part may be redundant because if you are not familiar with the Oxford American, which it seems like many of you are, we are a nonprofit arts organization dedicated to exploring the complexity and vitality of the American South. So it makes perfect sense for us to partner with 21C, who we're so grateful to work with to bring you tonight's program. 21Cs like the OA are committed to exploring exceptional art and the great tradition of Southern foodways. Tonight I'm thrilled to welcome three women who embody the best of what our region has to offer. In conversation with Alice Randall tonight, we have both Jody Hayes. Yeah. And Margot Price. And before we segue into the music, I'd like to introduce Alice and Jody. Our moderator for the evening, Alice Randall, is a national treasure. She's the author of The Wind Done Gone and Black Bottom Saints. Her cookbook, co written with her daughter, Soul Food Love, won the NAACP Image Award. She is a professor and writer in residence at Vanderbilt University and co writer of a number one song, X's and O's, recorded by Trisha Yearwood. Yeah, yeah. Alice is also a frequent contributor to the OA, serving as the guest editor of one of my personal favorites, our spring food issues. So I hope you'll head over to OxfordAmericanGoods.org and pick up a copy because it is evergreen. It's a fantastic celebration of Southern food. And in conversation with Alice first is Jody Hayes, who is, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Jody Hayes is a painter, originally from Arkansas. She was brought into a large cadre of other Arkansans today, since the OA is based in Arkansas. Her work has been shown at the Wiregrass Museum, Lab Space, Fisk University, Curb Center at Vanderbilt University, and Boston Center for Arts, among others. She is the recipient of grants from Sustainable Arts Foundation, the Tennessee Arts Commission, and the Elizabeth Firestone Graham Foundation. She lives and works right here in Nashville, and her work can be seen right here at 21C as part of The Future is Female. Please help me welcome my guests and moderator, and I throw it to you, Alice and Jody. Thank you, Sarah. Jody, I'm thrilled to be with you here tonight in this space because the opening of Nashville's 21C in the 21st century marked the emergence of Nashville as a home for a growing number of genre-bending, highly innovative visual artists. Your presence, your studio, your work is a part of this transformation. When did you arrive in the city and what drew you to Nashville originally? Thank you so much for moderating this, and Sarah, you're, I'm besotted with you already, so this is going to be tough. Um, I moved here 17 years ago, and what was appealing was um, a more affordable-ishness, <laughs> more, a more affordable city, 
But also, um, it's got a really good placement on I-40, you know, that I can just like take a clip down to Arkansas where my family is and where my husband's family is in Jackson. So um, we met in Knoxville, so Tennessee was a habit to us, but not Nashville. It was a whole other, whole other animal to, to live here and move here and kind of understand how it works. Well, it's no longer as affordable as it was 17 years ago. (laughs) It's not. The 17 years ago is a a really important distinction. So what are some of the things that sustain you most about this city as a place for an artist to live and work and have a studio now? You know, it was a few years ago that I had a New Year's resolution, this is before COVID, to um, see as much live music as possible. I was in a pretty intense, darker place in my studio practice, and despite a really tight-knit visual art community, which so many, so many are here, it's hard. It's really hard when people are speaking a different, um, kind of adjacent language of music, and you're making something else. In order to kind of like garner some love again for the city and for what I did, I thought, you know, I'm just going to go to like everything I can. I also had three children at the time under the age of five, so it was in a short order. Um, But that is, it's to walk down to the five spot. I can walk from my house and see someone just giving it their all and making something out of nothing. There's a creative bed here in the city that's been laid for no matter what your medium is. Like there's a a filter of people that are that are kind of given at everything and making things. So it's very rewarding. I have a studio in my backyard too, in my garage. So as unfancy as that is, um, there are so many artists doing the same thing, visual artists here. So you can kind of just have a 20-step commute and you're there. You can arrive at your work that you have to do. I heard that you have had pieces at Fisk and you mentioned that, you know, that from the 19th century forward, there's been such a strong music practice from the Fist Jubilee singers and all the country music in Nashville, Jimi Hendrix, but also from the literary arts. Uh, so du Bois finished Souls of Black Folk here. There's a 19th and 20th and 21st century. But I'm thrilled about this emergence, and I see a lot of the people. It's the 21st century that I think that we see Nashville emerging as a significant visual arts culture, and that is a thrilling addition to all of us who've lost other parts of the city, this great gain. And thank you. Let's applaud all of you out there. I say, you are part of that. The Italian art critic um, Germano Salon introduced the phrase arte favera in 1967, a time of a lot of economic difficulties and political difficulties in Italy, to celebrate art being created without the usual materials. It was understood at the time, those materials at the time were understood to be oil paint on canvas, bronze, and carved marble. This art povera movement privileged rather detritus, found objects, building supplies. For me, your work and you have stated you practice a kind of southern povera, stands in exciting contrast and conversation with the work of Alan LaCroix, who has given us two iconic classical statues, Athena in the Parthenon and Musica at the Music Row Roundabout, which are quite literally celebrations in carved, if painted marble and bronze. Your work, announces Nashville as a location of radical innovation, 
and it announces Nashville as a place art will not require benefactors to be created. It will liberate itself from mediums that tie it to great expense and require literal or figurative Medici's. Who are some of the other artists in your Nashville art community making interesting use of innovative and accessible materials, and why is it so important to you to live that accessibility and put in conversation with those old Medici requiring art effects? <laughs> Thank you. That was so kind. For me, I, I, it was a slow drip to arrive at this kind of materiality in my making. I um, didn't come from an art world. I came from super rural place. I don't come from Rubes, but there were no museums to go to in our spare time. So when I got to art school, it was important to me to learn everything I could about the history that everyone else was talking about and parroting. So I did that for a good 15 years of my practice. Understood modernist painting and um, figuration and abstraction. So this introduction of a new material, of these humility of materials, was somewhat new. And it became, once I discovered, quote unquote, um, the way that dye kind of um, finds itself through the rivulets of cardboard, it became a grid that made sense to me. It became a grid that was at once made by me, but also removed. It commented on European painting, but it was so down home, it, it felt like a self-portrait. And I... In art school, when I was learning all these things, it did frustrate me that um, I couldn't have accessed the materials that I had to go get for art. You know, there wasn't oil paints. There was, I called them oil paints back then, but I've amended my accent, unfortunately, because <laughs> um, New Yorkers really didn't like it. You know, there were all these kind of um, hierarchies with materials, even in art school, but it, it took me 15 years to kind of jettison those. And it is a political... Um, way of thinking about the world. I mean, I think, I think everything we do personally is political. But to champion a material or something that's cast off, or also, I think, to further that material and to trick the establishment into thinking and knowing that the work is also high work, too. So I think the high and low is what I'm really interested in. And not tricking as a, as a mean joke, but, you yeah. know. Um, I think you're yeah. troubling important lines. Hmm. that when you include a page from a telephone book, you're making us think about the woman who might have used that telephone book and the art of her life. You're troubling the line between artists. At the same time, you are uh, creating nuanced, complicated, formal work. There weren't a whole lot of um, Italian art pavora artists who were women. There were a few, but to bring it back to LaCroix's iconic um, nude sculptures of women, um, and they're stunning, but to think about materials as gendered as well, these are just as gendered as an Ellen LaCroix, I would, I would think, even if it's not a bright pink kind of suggestion. Um, but yeah, to champion those, um, the labor, the often invisible labor that goes on, um, not just in homes, but in studios and in workplaces, yeah. You were born in Arkansas in the bicentennial year. Um, from the 19th century forward, Nashville has been known as a home place of groundbreaking music creatives and literary creatives, as we talked about. Is there a Nashville-based music artist, present or past, that you listen to while you are creating? 
I have to admit that I enjoy complete silence. This is not popular in this town. I listen to all my friends all the time, but in the studio, I'm, it's quiet. I have three children, did I mention that? And I like any chance I can get for things to be quiet. Love that. Well, let us amplify this conversation by um, inviting an extraordinary songwriter and singer to join us. And so I am going to introduce to you Margot Price. <laughs> I'm so glad to see you in person. Midwest farmer's daughter, all American made. That's how rumors get started. And now the memoir. I teach country lyric in American culture, and I've spent a lot of time, 40 years, listening to the country canon. And it's clear listening to your recorded catalog, Margot. I've never been able to say these words to anyone. You have earned the right to be compared to four of the greats. Loretta Lynn, Dolly Parton, Merle Haggard, and Graham Parsons. Like Lynn, Parton, Haggard, and Parsons, your songs shock with insight, and your voice shocks with beauty. From the Midwest, you remind us that country does not belong to the South. It belongs everywhere and anywhere the British Isles and Africa collide in the environs of evangelical Christianity. Your work brings to mind Springsteen's Nebraska while underscoring why he isn't a country artist. He's missing the requisite evangelical vibe, even if it's only in an angelic voice. And you also remind me of Shakespeare's Coriolanus. You like Springsteen and Shakespeare, and this is, I believe, true. We must honor this art for its true worth. Your work captures moments that are all kinds of raggedy, and many kinds of wrong, but eclipsingly right because a human being transformed the hard into art. Ms. Margot Price. <laughs> so give us a little taste of all that you did, turning the hard into art. This is a song from an unreleased album that I wrote, and it's kind of a character study. There are pieces of it, of myself, that are in here. But um, it all is kind of what goes through a woman's head um, during the moment she's got to make a very difficult decision. This is called Lydia. your face would be like mascara bleeding into my eyes tied like a dog on a chain with a midlife crisis and an ex-husband sneaking a marker ultralight I stole from a nurse out there in the alley halfway home is where the heart is and I'm halfway home 
trash, trail of trash They said you'd always be it And you said one day you'll see But lately you start to wonder If maybe they were right Spit on you at school outside And in the locker room and in the bathroom too Locked you in the stall, bless this mess Can I bum a light? Cars out on the LA freeway, they look like red and light Christmas lights strung out on a chain. The ex Virgin Mary of 49th Street has a pocket full of pills. She sold herself for synthetic heroin and started sleeping with a man twice her age. Really, though, it was anything but sleeping. neighbors bad cough no health insurance this year transitional neighborhood gentrification comes like it always does in some nice condos they go in but the needles in the alley they're still laying Don't go barefoot or take a nap out there, wear shoes if you have them. Undercover methadone clinic, children close your eyes. Say a lullaby, sing of a nursery rhyme, or maybe something your mama used to tell you when you couldn't see. Jill fell down when the bell breaks, all the cradle will fall. Down will come, baby, down will come, baby, just put out the cigarette. Just make a decision, Lydia, just make a decision, it's yours. face in my mind It's wrong for him to want it Bless this mess Brush your hair Fix yourself up real nice You've got a show tonight Singing down at the broken bottle halfway in chips Guys, a couple of beers, go on, get the food, living off tips and men. I came home after dancing one night and I wrecked my car, so you have to take the bus now. So you've got a long walk to think about it. Long walk to the station. Long life ahead to live with yourself 
think about it, Lydia. Think about it, Lydia. Stunningly powerful, important song. Both of you are bringing things into the center of the conversation that have been put out to the sides that have not been addressed, and that's a song that's going to save some lives. So, sticking with where you are there, and I've had one of the good fortunes of being one of the people who's had a chance to read your extraordinary memoir, Swiss Dot Curtains. Meth you thought was cocaine. Seventeen red-tailed hawks, a roll-top desk. You capture the grit and grace of a profoundly curious, creative, and courageous human. You have a way with objects, and you use them to evoke interior psychological spaces. What are some of the objects that have made their way into your songs most significantly, and what are some of the objects that have made their way? Into your songs, most recently. I think I'm always kind of writing about nature. I think、mm. uh, recently, you know, during the pandemic,、um, I have tried to find time to go out and hike every day and to just take a moment outside because I think that. You know, as we're all looking at life through our screens, and like I just, the more time I spend on my screen, the more time I need off of my screen. <laughs> <laughs> It makes me feel very poisonous after a while. So、um, definitely, I think nature is is one thing that kind of keeps resurfacing,、um, and and the country and the rural areas, rural people, rural vignettes. Well, that is a perfect segue to the next question, and then I will be bringing the two of you into conversation. But that was a question about objects in honor of all the amazing objects that you use. A question of the aesthetic of Jody in Margot. So this is a dual love letter. I'm interested in、um, unexpected alliances. Margaret Winkle and I actually taught a course 20 some years ago on, to young women about writing their autobiographies through. Recipes. So we are unexpected. You've been an unexpected ally of mine, supporting Laverne Baker, the second woman to go into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Margot, at the height of winning all these awards, it was an honor. Thank you for thanking me. <laughs> Reading your autobiography, one of the stories that interested me the most was your relationship with your favorite park ranger. Can you <laughs> share that story as a little taste of? The unexpected alliances. I know you've been an unexpected ally, and you've had some unexpected allies. Yeah, for sure.、Um, well, I think one of the really beautiful things about Nashville is just finding that community, and I've been so lucky to kind of be able to pay it forward to friends like、uh, Brittany Howard. Stayed in my house before she made it, and、um, and then later after she made it, she ended up singing on my record, a record that never did anything at all, but a Buffalo Clover album <laughs> that was lost. Yeah, one of the people that I talk about in my book is a park ranger 
who was a Vietnam veteran, and he lived out at the Percy Priest area out there, and I went out there to smoke a joint with my cousin and jump off some cliffs one evening, <laughs> and he came to reprimand us, and then we became really great friends, and this man was in his 60s. Um, he was... We, saw, we didn't see things quite eye to eye all the time because he was older, he, was, you know, he had different views than me, but um, he allowed me to stay out there, camp on his property when I was homeless. Um, I brought him a dog that he ended up keeping and naming, and, and I came out there to visit him many times. My husband Jeremy met him multiple times, and um, he confided in me that he had cancer from Agent Orange, and um, it was just really sad to, you know, see someone who had served for our country and just was living in a, in a trailer and uh, not getting good care at the end of his life. And we went back one time to visit him, and he was just gone. I never got to say goodbye to him. You gave him so many great afternoons and some good pop. Yeah, we did. I gave, <laughs> yeah, I bring him this, the good weed. <laughs> this is a great memoir. I know, Jody. what are some of your experiences with unexpected allies? And who have you been an unexpected ally to? I think it comes from being the youngest of three and kind of just a little bit feral. But I honestly... Um, am surprised when I, whenever I have an ally. <laughs> and that's also, that's also not to um, understate that I have an incredibly supportive like, community and family and had a great childhood, but I still am kind of surprised when people are fans of the work or they know about it or, um, you know, I, I transferred in college, so like my professors are amazing, but just kind of, I, you know, I didn't have a whole lot of time with them. So I think I am still surprised when that anyone as an ally and so grateful, like kind of earnest and not cool grateful is my stance. <laughs> so who do you like to choose? Who do you, who do you offer allyship to? Oh, you man. find the person if, who... If someone has never been to a museum, if a young student is like, I have zero money, um, I am going to hustle for them and give them like everything I worked hard to, to learn about a system. Like, here's where, people, here's where people go to school. Here's the grants that you can't get yet, but maybe later. I mean, I, I'm an open book. I will tell anybody anything to help them out. Yeah. I love that. And I know what you mean when you say, I remember when I, my first trip to Nashville, I had a man who was at that time running a cuffers, put his feet up on his desk, shake his head and say, you need to just go back to wherever it is you came from. Mm. <laughs> and then he said, you may be at such a low, you know, early stage of development, I'm not exposed to people like you. And then he wrote me this wonderful letter, and said, I showed it to two young writers in our company, and they said you had no talent whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> See, to me, that was an unexpected ally. It made me determined to do it. Yeah. yeah. And it's, yes. um, you know, the, you, get, you find those allies where you can. You talk about up Provera, and I've written about trying to keep the balance up between love and money. You talk about the resourceful labor of women. You talk about $57 from broke. <laughs> All three of us create work that gives witness to the economic hardship that is gender amplified. What is one practical thing the world or the city could do to make creating wild female easier? How about three each? You start. Yeah, because I like that you got that one. Um, affordable childcare. Yeah. Yeah. 
second that. Um, do not have meetings at work when you don't need to. Like, just um, have events during the day when possibly someone does have childcare. Maybe have a lunch event. Maybe don't start. I'm going to get in trouble because I'm not a musician. Maybe don't start at 9 p.m. because you've got sitters and stuff. Um, so that was my three. You could keep yeah. going. That's really good. Affordable I mean, childcare was going to be my number one. Affordable, I would say affordable childcare. I mean, without a doubt, that's um, one of the things that we struggle with. I mean, especially since the pandemic, I have no babysitters. My mother helps me all the time or we would just be totally screwed. <laughs> um, yeah, I think, you know, just also supporting other women, supporting other women who are coming up, and we are kind of taught this scarcity, and I think as I am approaching 40, I am kind of finally learning that, you know, it doesn't have to be this, like, there's only room for one girl kind of bullshit. It's, um, yeah, support, support women, support other women. <laughs> And we know that, particularly artistic groups. We talked about the Harlem Renaissance there. It was, you know, Fitzgerald and Hemingway were, quote-unquote, competing, but they also supported each other and shared editors and agents. The artists do rise in groups, and I think we have to open the doors and work together. And I think, I love, um, I don't know, Alison Russell has been a great champion for that. Like, she is one of the, you know, great girl team people. And um, I love this, that we are doing this together because also to be allies across art forms. I think one mm. thing that women need to do while standing up for our political rights and our payment rights and just decent conditions in the... Um, and that includes not being sexually harassed in our workplaces, which actually more non-present meetings helps with that, that we have so much... <laughs> <laughs> but. We should also have the freedom to be in our spaces and be exactly who we are and be respected. I think another important part is shifting the conversation. That song that you sang, let's looking at audience and what is the subject of, of all art and making the audience and empowering the diverse audience to stand up for what it wants to hear and see not just what it's always being given. By privileging the audience, we often empower women and non-gender binary voices. Amen. By privileging the audience, we do so much good work. Um, in a moment, we're going to get right back to a little bit more music. But I want to say this, ask you both two my hard questions. One hard question for you, one hard question for you. Marco, you've turned the city into a text that you used to instruct yourself in the art of songwriting. This was not something that just came down to you. You worked hours and arduously. And in the construction of what we've been calling this beauty out of hard days and harder nights, a thing that interests me about you is your extraordinary ability to instruct yourself. You taught yourself the guitar, you taught yourself to write songs, locking yourself into rooms and not particularly nice rooms for days. And you did it with what I would call a wild and radical discipline. I was going to ask you what advice you would give a person trying to summon their own radical discipline to write, but I realized before I got here I wanted to ask you what advice would you give a person to summon their own radical discipline 
to live. Because mm, you live. are as profoundly an artist <laughs> of life Thank and you. reformed as you are an artist of songs. You've, where does that radical, what, what can you say? Um, well, I think finding strength and vulnerability and also being able to transform your crises into your strengths. And, you know, uh, I think this is a, I'm trying to remember who said this, but before transformation often comes crisis and everybody is going to encounter hard things in their life. And, you know, it sounds very cliche to just be like, it's what you do with that that builds your character. But um, you know, there's many times where I just wanted to leave Nashville because it just wasn't working for us. And we did. We would sell all of our things and we would leave and then we would come back. And it was like, I just could not let this city kick my ass. And, and you know, even during the pandemic, when I found myself here way more than I wanted to be and, you know, just how I was looking at um, just how the South, you know, has has been handling things and it's it's been very frustrating and at times like I have I have really wanted to leave but I think ultimately um, being in the south for all of my adult life and staying through those hard times um, gave me all the tools that I that I needed you applied your discipline to things that mattered to you not to what other people thought mattered you allowed yourself to mess up on some strange jobs mess up this mess up that but when it came to songwriting when it came to taking care of the child that you have when it came to this relationship you wanted you were just radically disciplined yeah I mean I made huge mistakes I made huge mistakes in our marriage I made huge mistakes after losing a child and you know, I have struggled with all sorts of substance abuse, and I know that putting a lot of that into this book, even when one chapter was released, I had all these people kind of hating on me online, saying, you're a terrible mother, you're a terrible person, you're all, you know, you're this and that. And really what it comes down to is what I have learned from myself and how I have learned to keep going. And, you know, having... having um, Strength and confidence isn't walking in the room and saying, oh, these people are going to like me. It's walking in the room and saying, I don't care if they like me or not. I am proud of myself. Jody, one of the things we started up by talking about Nashville, and this podcast is centered on Nashville, but one of the things that really interested me about your work was, one, empowering your audiences, that I think that your encountering your work is to actually have almost a therapeutic intervention of putting you as audience into some artistic space, as well as putting you as audience into awe of the formal things that you are able to do with informal medium. But I'm also amazed by looking at the body of your work, that you are local, but you manage to truly have a national and global identity. There's a quality of abstraction that I think allows your work to travel around the world, to have impact. And I noticed that when I looked online, there are people all over this country interested in your work. And there are people, I think, growing numbers all over the globe that are interested in your work. Please give me their numbers. (laughs) (laughs) But how, is that something you consciously see? But you do seem to manage to have both a local 
I am global. stunned. <laughs> Thank you. I do think that what is tricky about being a Southerner or being from someplace rural, what's tricky is that your, your work can be seen in only, through only one lens, so maybe only through the lens of quilt making or, um, you know, kind of Ellie Mae Clampett-like cliché. I think the trick of making and, and gaining those eyes that are um, elsewhere are, are working, like, knowing your history and um, understanding that the work can transcend the space where you're from, but also bring that in. Um, I know Margot likes uh, The Wizard of Oz, or at least it was one of the first things. Um, I'm a little older than you, but I did grow up also seeing it come on, like, TNN once a year and then, like, recording it. But Dorothy had her friends around her. Like, that's how she got there. Um, and if you think about, like, materials is home or, or language is home, is in a book or something, um, I think James Baldwin said you, uh, home isn't a place, but it's an irrevocable condition. So I think what people are tracking with probably Margot's, I am not a music critic, work, and then other people Thank in, in here. No, <laughs> I would be so good. Um, I think people track with um, something they can relate to that feels like home, and it's, it's a condition. It's not a pin on a map. It's not... Um, it's not even necessarily a building, or it's, it's the, the feeling of people around you, or, yeah. So I, I think that there's a way t for materials to become political, and I hope that that comes through in the work. And I think sometimes, you know, I had a crazy mother and not a happy home. I found home and shelter in songs that I didn't, it wasn't something familiar, it was something um, at times astoundingly new and the structures of the beauty. I want to make a sort of, not a pre-concluding remark, that this is a dangerous world. Your work acknowledges that. Your work acknowledges that. You both write outside the fairy tale. You paint outside the fairy tale. We each create what I experience as a new kind of mythology in which women find the liberation space to investigate and take risk and be beautiful as an aspect of self-delight and encounter beauty that is a far cry from pretty. To create art that walks the interior distance from anywhere but here to no place I would rather be. There is no place I would have rather be tonight than with the two of you in this space. So, Margot, will you give us a little bit more of that hard turn to beauty? Sure, yeah. I'm actually going to invite my husband to come up and play with me. Absolutely. Okay, so this is a song that is called Every Time I Hear a Motorcycle, and uh, it's an unreleased song.
had a flash and a violent sleep. So on the back of your Harley Davidson, going a hundred miles an hour until we hit the Cumberland. Floating to the bottom Wake up in an ashtray Where no one would ever discover them Cause they went to the other side Cause they went to the other Never promised tomorrow, never promised you anything I don't have to explain myself, I've been betrayed by friends and family I won't regret leaving this town, cause it never loved me And if you wonder where I'm living now don't ever try to find me I ran for cover Till I found him out in the driveway And I didn't want to believe it was true slumped back in the front seat of his pickup eyes rolled back in his head oh why did it have to be you who went to the other side who went to the other Jody Hayes. Everybody order her memoir. Everybody pick your favorite big Nashville company like Assyrian, Oracle, and tell them to buy a piece for their building. So we are at the end of our evening. And I want to invite Sarah Lewis to the stage. Sarah is the founder of the Evening's World Feast, which has been like all things Oxford American, thought-provoking, Southern, and fun. I hope. Well, thank you all so much for joining us tonight. And I just want to get another round of applause for the room, for the tape, for these three women. Fantastic. Awesome. And I have to point out that you can read part of Margot's memoir in the next issue of the Oxford American. So also thank you to 21C for hosting this event and creating a space for conversations like these to happen. I had to put my executive director hat on and talk about Oxford American being a nonprofit for a second. We are able to freely present 
events to the public like this thanks to the generosity of folks like 21C and, and folks like you. If you can, head to oxfordamerican.org slash donate and give. We would greatly appreciate it. This event was produced with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and 21C Nashville Museum and Hotel. The episode was produced by me, Christian Brown, and Christian Lewis. Special thanks to Jody Hayes, Alice Randall, Margot Price, and Danielle Jackson. You can keep events like these free by making a contribution at oxfordamerican.org donate.